Now, Joan, did you remember to wind the things up? Because I do need a little bit of maintenance, you know. Hey, Michelle. Geordie. Oh, Welcome I'm... home. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, but where is home these days? Home is where the heart is. Heart is. That's right. Yes. Home is where the part is. I What? I don't even know what that means. Home no is where clue. the party is. is. Let's get some more of those margaritas going. She got me drunk, people. Soz. She got me drunk. Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. Lovely to be back here in my home, UK. Gorgeous to see your face. Thank you, Michelle. Same here. I've really enjoyed having you back. I wish that you could stay forever and ever. But luckily for everyone out there in the eavesdropping universe, they get to hear us like we're sitting next to each other all the time when perhaps we might not be. So now's maybe a really good time to introduce ourselves to those new listeners. I'm Michelle and she is... Geordie. And together we are eavesdropping. Eavesdropping. <laughs> no, you're, I... we're chatting. You're eavesdropping. That's what's happening that, here. I know. It is like that. But I always say, eavesdropping. Yes, you I do. Always, I always sound like a five-year-old. <laughs> I actually had my sister's kid. I sound just like her. She's under 10. You might want to sound more mature then, Michelle. How would you do it? Eavesdropping. 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 I think oh. uh, I just did it like print my Prince Charles impersonation. <laughs> do you remember? Camilla. <laughs> Have you ever had any uh, comments on that? Any good feedback? No one, no one has ever mentioned anything about my superb Prince Charles impersonation, which we did way back in another episode. We did. I might put a link to that. Do. It was a good one. I particularly liked the laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I've only you could see her face. <laughs> Ew. Yes. What did we do last week? I'm just trying to remember if there's any comments. We Last week's episode was about Shadow People, <gasps> Hatman, and yes. your revelatory conversational topic of UFOs and all that information that's come out via the CIA, via the American government, and the fact that UFOs may have been responsible for decommissioning loads and loads of atomic weapons and nuclear warheads, not just in the U in the US, but also in Russia. It is. It's kind of amazing because obviously I love a UFO. This is not even a conspiracy theory. The government are all over it. It's so a fact. <laughs> fast and loose. That's a fact right there. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had anyone come up to me and talk to me about aliens, but please, people, I, I'm thrilled if you do. Well, we could go to the pub after and see if there's any eavesdroppers there and they might come up and talk to you about that. After a few drinks. Yeah. We'll see. And do you have any shout outs? I do week? have shout outs this week, Michelle. I've got two very old friends of mine who I recently found out were eavesdroppers. One was up a ladder. Luckily, he didn't fall off when he was tittering away <laughs> down in Tilba. Tittering in Tilba, that's what we'll call him. No, actually, oh. <laughs> his name is John Matthews and he is the proprietor of the local store there. So pop in and buy some fudge or send a letter. John is happy to help you. 
And the <laughs> other shout out is from a man by the name of Andy Thompson, who I have not seen since I was a teenager or thereabouts. So hi, Andy. I'm so thrilled that you're listening. Please write in. We'd love to hear any ideas for stories from all of you eavesdroppers, but particularly from you two, because I know that, John, you've got a great story and I'm desperate to tell it. So do get in touch, fellas. It's hello at eavesdropping.com. Is that right? That is. <laughs> is that right? Yes, that is. That is our email address. Oh, amazing. Oh, shout out, guys. Shout out. Shout out. Shout out. You're getting a shout out. I completely forgot. Terry Whittaker wrote in to say when he was listening to the Shadow Men episode last week, yes. he actually had shivers and he sent me a video of his the hairs on his arms standing to attention while he was listening to the Shadow People story because it was so similar to the experiences which we told a story about Terry. If you remember, there was a Haunted House episode where he had friends in his bedroom and he also had uh, somebody on the landing in his family home. So yes. Put a link to that story as well. It triggered Terry. So apologies, darling Terry. I hope you're feeling better now. Could you actually see the hairs on, on his arm? Yes. Standing up. Yep. Look, we might have to put that on Patreon if, if Terry lets us. <laughs> a little a little shiver, shiver arm, a little Ooh. hairy shiver arm. I love it. Oh, I'm sorry, Terry. I'm sorry we, we caused you Frightened the her. life out of him and triggered him terribly. The sweet bejesus. Also, Michelle... It came to my attention this week because we're talking about true crime. Are we talking about true crime today? Yes, we are. No, we're not. No, it's real life. It's real life. It's real. <laughs> Hang on. It's real life. It's real life. That's right. It's real life. That's right. We're talking about real life this week, not true crime. Not true crime. But something crimey happened this week that was just a little bit interesting. There's an American author by the name of, it's the most interesting name. It's a woman. Her name is Crampton Brophy. Brophy is spelled B-R-O-P-H-Y. She wrote a book called How to Murder Your Husband. Well, guess what, Michelle? She was found guilty of murdering her husband recently. Yeah, she shot her husband twice through the heart in June 18 at a cookery school where he was a teacher. So this woman is 71 years old. She's denied the charge, insisted she can't remember the incident or even being there. But security footage has put her at the scene. So, yeah, um, yeah. she stood to receive something like $1.4 million in life insurance in the event of her husband's death. But Crampton says that it was not a motive and she loved her husband. So, look, do you think she maybe had a psychic attack or a psychotic <laughs> attack, actually, no. is what I meant to say. Because yeah. at 70 years old. Yeah. She lost it. Maybe she was living her stories. Maybe she was – actually, I do think she said she was – she then came back to say that the reason why she was at the cookery school at the time was because she was researching her next novel, How to Kill Your Husband too, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a man died and I'm guffawing. I'm so sorry. That's terrible. It's very unusual. I mean, at 70, you want to top your husband. I mean, you haven't got that long. I don't know. I don't know. It's very strange. I bet if we do a true crime episode in the future, we will Mm. find the elderly are at it with the guns, knives, machetes, whatever, <laughs> strangling, poison. I bet they're popping each other. They've had enough of each other by 70, 71. Yep. It's like, get the fuck off this world. 
<laughs> Boom. I'm sick of sharing my bed for the last 50 years. Yeah, no, look, I get it. I get it. I mean, I thought it was interesting that you were talking about her surname, Brophy, as the strange name. Crampton is Crampton. the strange name. No, Crampton, Crampton. and Brophy, they're both funny names. Well, I shouldn't say funny. They're <laughs> unusual names. They're unusual, unusual. Crampton. Imagine calling your daughter Crampton. No, it just, it just reminds me of period cramp. Cramptons. Of course it I've does. I've got my Cramptons. I'm going to <laughs> the Cramptons know. this summer. How about that? Sounds like a place. Crampton Pools. Yeah, Crampton Pools. Pools. Well, it's called Hampton <laughs> Pools, actually. Sorry, Crampton. I wonder, look, we ha- you have to keep an eye on that case yes. and see if she ends up going to jail or not. Or if they give her a hall pass because she's... 71? Yeah, I mean, 71 is still young. She shot him in the heart, Michelle. Yeah, I mean... Twice. <laughs> So, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No laughing. Is... Someone died. I know, but how do you how do you get yourself out of that twice in the heart? Boom, boom. There's the old, I forgot, I don't know what I was doing there. And then there's the old, oh, I was researching, a, researching a, or I thought there were blanks. All of that. She could try all of those <sighs> things. Let's see. But all they have to do is read her book to find out how to kill your husband. Because it says in her book. But it doesn't say how to get away with murder. It's true. Might have to look into that. Yes, definitely. Watch this space. So what do we got this week then, Michelle? Well, we have some real life today. Real life. Real life. And it is a real life story, although these things often tend to touch on a bit of true crime. So it is a case. And it does come from uh, eavesdropper. Monique, who did tell me about this very mysterious case. It's one of those bizarre things that I think it must have had some media attention in Australia because a few people have mentioned this this story to me and I don't remember it. And it's a bit strange because I think I would have remembered it because it's really shocking and quite baffling. And also it's about a pair of Dutch girls. Right. So it's not even Australians. No, it's European story. And okay. look, before I before I get going, I just want to say that a lot of my info today comes from a Dutch woman. I don't know if this is her real name or not, uh, but her name is Kude Kaz. I don't know if that's her handle or her real name. And she wrote this amazing blog about the case, which oh. I will put a, a link to. Yeah. Shout out to Kudi for all, all of her research. So I'm I'm going to take you back to March 15 in 2014 okay. when 21-year-old Dutch student Chris Kramers and her 22-year-old friend Lizanne Froon, they boarded a plane from Amsterdam to Costa Rica. Then they took a bus to Bocas del Toro in Panama and then they took a boat to the Panamanian island of Isla Colon. What? I know it's a really unfortunate oh name, dear. but I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> and and this is all in the um, Bocas del Toro archipelago. By all accounts, Lizanne was the shy one and Chris was the kind of fun one. There's always one. Which one are you in these two? In, in our What do you group? think? <laughs> <laughs> You're the shy one. Extroverted introvert, really. You're the introverted extrovert. <laughs> what? So they were friends and they'd met working at a, a cafe in Utrecht and they'd saved up for ages to take this trip, this trip during their gap year where they were, you know, going to go travelling and also do a bit of a, a stint of volunteering at a small school. And the pair, like, were really 
really excited about volunteering. They collected money from people to buy toys for the kids, which they packed into their suitcases. They were also going to learn Spanish while they were there. They'd booked onto a few language courses. And by everything I read, they were just smart, nice girls who just wanted to have a holiday and help people. And look, it wasn't a long holiday. They were only meant to be going for like five or six weeks. So it wasn't like this big kind of backpacking, you know, trip. But, you know, they they planned everything actually through a tour company. So it was just meant to be quick. When they first got to the coast of Panama, they spent some time in a place called Bocas del Toro. And, And there they were learning Spanish at a Dutch run language school. And they're just hanging out with people they met, including a couple of Dutch guys. You know, they did all the normal stuff. You know, they went out to the beach. They were sightseeing. They were partying. But not like the Peru two, who end up being drug mules. They yeah. they were just, they were pretty tame. And after two weeks of just sort of having fun, they ended up in a town called Boquet on March 29. It's a, a small city near the western border of Panama. And that's where the school that they were volunteering at was. But when they got there, the headmistress told them they weren't needed and basically sent them away. And they were gutted because they'd spent so much time organising it. They'd worked hard to raise money for these toys. And now they had this spare week with nothing to do. So apparently Chris and Lizanne were staying with a host family in, in a small village called Alto Bocket which was near to a different branch of the same Dutch-run Spanish school. So they thought, well, you know, we're doing this language course. We may as well stay in the area. So they thought they'd book a few day tours. And, you know, they were going to go, like, climbing the local volcano and go to a coffee plantation, a strawberry farm, all that kind of stuff. But they didn't have anything booked for Tuesday, the 1st of April. So they decided to just go for a really reasonably quick hike on the Pianista Trail, which sounds incredible. It's, it goes through cloud forests and rainforests. Oh, what? Cloud forests? Yeah, where you end up like in the clouds. Oh um, my goodness. But it's not a hard trail and it's not like they were trekking into wilderness. It is a big wide trail. It's not particularly difficult. You can do it in a few hours. They apparently got a taxi to the start of the trail, which was around nine kilometres away from the host family's house. The taxi driver said that he dropped them off at the start of the trail at around 1.30 in the afternoon, which immediately to me was a bit weird because when you're starting a hike, even if it's only a few hours, you always go in the morning. You don't go for an afternoon hike because... What are they going to do for four hours and then it's dark? It's dark, you know, the rain, the wind and the rain can come in. You know, you, you always start in the morning. Yeah. It's weird because, and this is where kind of the, the mystery starts, the girls have pictures on their phones of the hiking trail that are time-stamped at around 11. So that actually, yeah, in the morning. So that makes more sense. Right. And it was also reported that there was a, a local dog called Azgul, who belonged to the restaurant owners at the start of the trail. And the dog went on the hike with the girls. Oh. Yeah. However, later that day, Asgul came home, but there was no sight of the girls. At this point, the restaurant owners were a bit worried and they contacted the the host family. And I'm not really sure how they knew who the host family was, but once the host family 
had this weird information that the dog had come home but the girls were nowhere to be found. They called the police to report them missing. But CINEPROC, which is the National System for Civil Protection in Panama, they just brushed it off. And they didn't investigate it immediately because they were like, ah, girls go missing, you know, they're probably just out partying. But the host family weren't so sure and they started ringing around like local people to come and just go looking for them. Yeah. And they did. There was a little bit of a, you know, look around, but they didn't find the girls and they certainly didn't find any clues as to where they might have been. So they just sort of hoped they'd turn up the next day. And the following morning, they'd booked a walking tour with a tour guide, which was meant to start at 8 o'clock and they never showed up. Oh, and again, to me, it's weird that the girls would go for a hike on their own and then book a walking tour in the same area. So there's a few weird things that don't sort of add up. And I look, I don't know if that means anything or not. It was just a thought I had. But anyway, the host family, the language school, everyone was getting worried and they contacted the police again. And on Thursday, April 3, finally, the, the authorities decided to do something about it. And they actually did an aerial search over the forest and they sent people out on foot to look for the girls. It came to nothing. And the thing is, the girls were really good at communicating with their families. You know, they were texting daily. Chris had a a boyfriend. She was texting with him. But from that morning of April 1, all communication with anyone went dead. And was there any sign of them? No. And the parents, once they were told their daughters had gone missing, they Mm. were straight on a plane out to Panama. And they put up a $30,000 reward for information that led to finding the girls. But it all came to nothing because there was literally no clues anywhere as to what happened to Chris and Leanne. It was like they had vanished without a trace. And then on June 11, this is like two months later, right? Yeah. A local woman apparently found Lizanne's blue backpack oh my God. and handed it into the police a couple of days later. So this had the photos in, the camera. Well, yeah. And the thing was that the woman said she found it between a rock and the river in this very remote village of mm. Alto Romero, which is about 15 kilometres from the start of the walking trail. Right. And to put that into perspective, that's basically 15 walking hours away from where they first got on that trail. There, there wasn't a police station anywhere nearby where the woman found the, the backpack. So it took two days for her to hand it in. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing was the bag, it looked perfect. It was dry. Everything inside it was dry and clean. Everything was clean. And it was found near the river and the thing is that there had been weeks and weeks of heavy rain but the bag looked as if it had never been wet let alone survived you know weeks in a muddy jungle so it's really weird because you know to me it was like has this bag been planted there is just no way according to the weather conditions it could have been like that and then what they found inside was also weird everything was neat so there were two very neatly folded bras which did belong to the girls two pairs of sunnies both the girls mobiles which were undamaged there was a digital camera and an sd memory card 88 american dollars and an empty water bottle and again all dry 
all undamaged. Neat as a pin inside this bag. If you look up this case, there are so many reports about the Panamanian authorities fucking up this investigation by waiting too long to search for these girls, losing evidence, not doing correct DNA testing. And the thing with the backpack is they actually did do some DNA testing and they found 13 different DNA samples on the backpack and the bras. Oh. Yeah. Some reports say there's 34 different bits of DNA on there belonging to women and men. However, on the actual backpack, there was no DNA from Chris or Lizanne. Actually, on any of the items is what I read. So it is really, really bizarre. Like, they've been wiped clean, washed Mm. even. Who fucking knows? The thing is, the woman who brought the bag in, she was never DNA tested. Neither was anyone related to the case. Apparently, the police didn't wear gloves when they were handling any of the evidence. And the thing is, to this day, no one knows whose DNA is on that bag or the stuff inside it. Online people are just talking this up as another fuck up from the Panamanian authorities. But what has the like internet sleuths really fired up is that what they found on the girls' phones is is bizarre because it doesn't make sense and it doesn't make any of this mystery clearer. It just kind of deepens it. So from the photos and also from the phones going through the call logs, it's pretty clear they ran into trouble around 4.39. So if they actually left at 11, this is, what, five and a half hours later? Mm-hmm. Because both girls on their phones tried to call 112, which is the emergency number in Holland. And apparently, if you call your local emergency number, yeah, it switches to the emergency number of the country you're in. Oh, okay. I didn't right. know this. I, I didn't ne- know. There's a top tip, everyone. Yeah, I hope that's true. I haven't. Yeah. I didn't try it because I don't want to, you know, alarm the authorities. But no, maybe we could Google it. Yeah, I did, and and it seems to be the case. But okay, God, I good don't to know. know. Thing is, it didn't work for the girls. Oh, shit, you know, I could go into a lot of detail about the phone logs because it's all over the internet. Basically, there were a lot of attempts to one one two and also nine one one. And none of the calls got through. Oh, dear. Over the next eight days, Lizanne's Samsung and Chris's iPhone were powered on and off. Loads of emergency calls that didn't go through, except for one time where one of Lizanne's calls did connect for a couple of seconds and then it was disconnected. And we don't know why. We don't know whether it was poor reception. We don't know if someone hung up the phone. Mm -hmm. No one knows. And then there were pin codes so you know you have to unlock your phone with a pin. Yeah. After day five, the wrong pin code kept getting put into both the girls' phones. Okay. And the pin codes after day five were never entered correctly again. Mm-hmm. And then on April 11, so remember they went missing on April 1. Yeah. Both phones were, were basically never switched on again. Wow. Despite when the police found like her phone in the backpack when they powered it up, it still had 22% battery left. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I did read, actually, that there were 77 emergency calls, call attempts just from Chris's iPhone. So what the fuck was going on? Don't know. Can you tell us? Well, <laughs> look, it's it's a really unsatisfying real-life story because, you know, we don't have any answers. But 
it's so intriguing because – and look, I just want to talk a little bit about the digital camera that was in the backpack. Yeah. Because when investigators looked at the images on the camera, there were 133 photos taken from when they started the hike. And they were like smiling at the camera at the start and, you know, on the Pianista Trail. Yeah. It was a nice sunny day, pictures of them walking up like halfway. And you can see from the pictures, it's not wild jungle. It just looks like a pretty cruisy hike. Hmm. But then at around 12.45... There's a pic that shows the girls almost at the summit and then there are pics of them at the summit and there are clear skies, sunshine. So probably around one o'clock that was taken. And then you can see from the photos that they didn't turn around and go back the way they came once they reached the summit of the hike. Instead, they hiked and they pieced together from the pictures to a place called the Caribbean Descent. And this was pretty normal, actually, because it was just, if you keep going, that's where you end up. Right. But, you know, there's speculation about why why didn't they head straight back. Some people say they had, you know, I read that they were meant to look at some waterfall. They'd mentioned to someone about a waterfall. Other people saying, oh, you know, perhaps they were meeting those two Dutch guys. What two Dutch guys? That they'd met earlier on in their... Oh in their trip because, you know, they were all at this language school. So they were meeting right. other Dutch people. Yeah. Judging from the locations in the pictures and the time of them, if the pair had turned around to go back, it probably would have taken an hour to walk back to the summit hmm. and then an hour or so to get back to the village. So right. they could have been home by about four o'clock. But what about this taxi driver though, Michelle, who said he dropped them off at one thirty? I mean, that is absolutely untrue. Isn't it suspicious? It is suspicious when you're looking at the timestamps on the photos. Yeah. Because someone's lying somewhere. Mm. Well, it's not the timestamps, is it? It's the bloody taxi driver. Clearly. <laughs> it's solved. There you it's go. Him. There we go. <laughs> <It's> Boom. Di- <laughs> it was a taxi driver with a candlestick. Um, oh, oh, Jesus. No. Well, you know, I'm just talking about Cluedo. I'm not oh, saying okay. anything. Oh, right. my God. No. It's, you've got a dirty mind. No, Michelle. You do. <laughs> the whole thing about all these timestamps is that if they just turned around at that point, they they could have been back before dark. Right, yeah. Well before dark. Yeah. But they didn't. And clearly they went to a different part of the mountain. And that's where they started making those, the first of the like unsuccessful emergency calls. So were they forced, I wonder? Thing is, right, the first calls were made at 4.30. And I was thinking about this. It's still daylight. Sometimes. Where? where no, it we? is where they were. It's oh, okay. still daylight, right? Right. Because, you know, if they could have been home before four, if they'd walked back before dark, it stands to reason that when they're making calls at 4.30, it's yeah. it's still daylight. It makes you think, were they lost? Were they injured? Did they meet someone? Did someone mm-hmm. offer to show them a way back and instead took them deeper into the jungle? Because for me, emergency calls, it has to be a real fucking danger situation if you're making an emergency call in, in the daytime. I feel. Mm, yeah. Because it's not like, fuck, the night's come in and, and I'm lost, right? Yeah. And the other thing is, considering they'd taken loads and loads of pictures of, of themselves up until that point, there were no pictures of like injuries or that they were in trouble. The photos just stopped. They were kidnapped at the summit. That's what I believe. Yeah. Just from Look, what you've told me. Definitely. And I think, 
I think the taxi driver could have had something to do yeah. with this because he's saying the wrong time to the police. All that all he has to say is to the and they're beautiful girls, stunning. Mm. Two beautiful European girls going for a hike on their own, easy targets. But weird things keep happening because you know, they didn't take any videos of themselves talking about being lost or anything. There was just right. nothing. There's also no record of the girls calling or texting anyone but the emergency numbers. No calls to the family, no calls to the boyfriend, no one. No, there's not even any like videos where, you know, if they were injured, like, you know, I'm dying and these are my last words. Like, because you hear about that all the time, nothing. So it just makes you wonder, like, you know, were they held captive? It is really dark. No bodies? Well, I'm going to get to that. Yeah, so back to the camera photos. One of the bizarre elements of this case is that after the smiling pics of the girls on the summit, there were no more pictures until the night of April the 8th. So, remember, they went missing on April 1. It's eight days later. Yeah. There were 90 pictures taken at night between 1 and 4 a.m. And most of them are just pitch dark. But there are a few where you can see something. And I've seen these pictures. Oh, God. I can't really see what everyone else sees in them. But my eyesight's fucked, so don't take that as anything. (laughs) The pics that are clear, sort of clear, show the girls' stuff spread out on rocks near a plastic bag with lolly wrappers. There are piles of dirt, a mirror as well. What? And there's one that seems to show the back of Chris's head with what people on the internet reckon is blood coming out of her temple. Mm-hmm. But who's taking the pictures? Because is it Lizanne? Is it someone else? And why were they taken? 90, 90 pictures all taken at night when none had been taken in the previous to eight days. To use as light perhaps? Yes. someone. There have been theories about were they trying to use the flash to alert yeah. people? Or so they could see. Maybe it was the only f- source of light for them. But why had they spread their stuff everywhere in weird ways? Like, it's bizarre. And also the phone ha- still had 22% battery. You'd always use your phone, wouldn't you? Well, and also you'd try and see if there was signal. Like, you would yeah. you would use your battery till it's dead. But there's also, I read, there's one photo missing. So you know how when you've got, like, old digital cameras? Oh, they've deleted one. One is missing and it is the photo between, it's the last photo of between daylight and those nighttime shots. Oh. Who knows if that was a clue, but it's gone and they can't recover it. Huh. So you asked me just before about their bodies. In August 2014. Same year that they yep. went missing. Yeah. Yeah. So a few months later, a pelvic bone was found oh. and shades of Melissa Caddick here, a foot was found still inside a walking boot. Oh, fuck. And the DNA did confirm that the bone belonged to Chris, like the pelvic bone, and the foot belonged to Lizanne. Oh, no. And you know, you probably know what I'm going to say next. Aliens. Uh, No. 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 But it could have been aliens. No. What I mean is, and you don't agree with me on this, a foot doesn't mean that Lizanne is dead. It only means they've found a foot. Right. And I did read one theory on the internet that suggested that Lizanne is alive and being sex trafficked with only one foot Mm. but I really find that fucking disturbing and I don't want to think that that's true no but when they found the initial body parts there were also they found five fragments of bodies 
oh, well, of bone that did belong to Chris and Lizanne. But they also found bone chips from three other bodies. Oh, my God. So what the fuck is going on in Panama? And then Lizanne's foot that was found in the shoe seems to have decomposed in a pretty natural way. But Chris's Mm -hmm. bones were unnaturally stark white, as if they'd been bleached. And some people say that it was sun bleached, but they weren't out in the sun for that long and there'd been heavy rains. And one of the theories was that the girls were murdered for illegal organ trafficking. Right. And that once they got what they wanted, they put the body in some kind of acid, which kind of stripped all the flesh off, which is why the bone is bleached like that. But there's no evidence to support this theory. But I also did read that there were no marks found on the bones, like no scratch marks, no damage. They hadn't been scavenged or dragged or smashed against Mm -hmm. rocks, which when they were in the middle of nowhere, like how is that possible? Animals everywhere. So yeah. What's up there? Well, were the bones dumped there from someone else? Right. Like, there's no answers. And look, Mm. the Panamanian authorities have wrapped up this whole case as one of being, like, misadventure. That two girls went out for a hike with no supplies. They got lost. They didn't survive. End of story. But Mm. I really can't believe that this is, like, a girls lost in the wilderness scenario. Because to me, it absolutely fucking stinks of foul play. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I cannot make head nor tail of this because were they abducted? Were they subjected to horrific things before being trafficked and killed? You know, were they followed on that trail? Why did they take their bras off? You know, what were they trying to tell us with all those nighttime photos? And why did they call emergency so quickly on that trail in daylight? And Mm. were they really alive for 10 days? Or did Mm. someone else have their phones? You know, how come that backpack was pristine? And how come they couldn't remember their pins on their phone? Well, it wasn't them. Clearly, that was someone else, yeah. Or was one girl already dead and the other girl was trying to get into the phone, you know? Maybe, yeah. Like, was that guide who, well, not even the guide that they were meant to go with, but was there someone who, you know, like, had tipped off the cartel, maybe the taxi driver, to kidnap Mm -hmm. them? And how come the police fucked up the case so badly, considering for international cases... They're all in on it. Yeah. And I did read that... Part of the reason police were fucking around were they wanted to kind of protect Panama's tourism trade by not being, you know, branded a place that's unsafe for women. Mm. But, you know, it is kind of crazy. And a lot of other theories were saying maybe the Dutch boys were in on it somehow. Hmm. And, you know, why were their bodies found so far away? And look, Mm. the thing is, there is so many question marks over this case. But to me, it's just a really tragic story that, you know, ended the lives of these two women. And and I don't think it's a mystery that's ever going to get solved. So that's my What a shame. That's terrible. Wow. Thank you for that. Guess what? Did you know aliens are real? The earth is actually flat and you can have sex with a ghost. Open your eyes, dear. I've got a missing girl tale to tell you as well today, you see, Michelle, and I could not wait to tell you because I really enjoyed the research on this one. It's about my favourite film of all time, Picnic at Hanging Rock. (gasps) Oh, my God. It's a work of fiction by Australian writer Joan Lindsay, and it was made into a film by Peter Weir, Uh, The book was released in 1967. She was 70 years old at the time, Lindsay was. And it was based on her own experiences at a ladies' college. And 
this fictional version of the Ladies' College is called Appleyard College for Young Ladies, and it's a boarding school in central Victoria. As you know, there was a film made of it in the 70s, Peter Weir, and then they've recently made a mini-series out of it, and I think it was it's on Amazon maybe, or it was on something, I don't know, starring Natalie Dormer from Game of Thrones. Well, I started watching that and it was quite shit. I did too. I would advise, if you love the film, which I absolutely do, don't watch yeah. it. So I got a lot of my information from a lot of different sources, but one was Mashable, which is a website, and mm-hmm. it said it was like the Blair Witch of its generation. Oh, yes. Which is kind of true because Blair Witch was done in, the, in a kind of documentary film style, handheld cameras, etc. And it, of course it was fictional, but they tried to make out like it wasn't. And in a way because it was based on Joan Lindsay's own experiences at a boarding school and she has memories of various things similar to this happening at the time, although she's never, ever come out and said that it was true or not. She was very enigmatic in her answers. She would drop hints, though, but investigators could never find in any archives to back up any of the activities that occurred at Hanging Rock ever happening. And now, if you yourself, listener, have never watched Picnic at Hanging Rock or read the book then please do because it might be dated but it's bloody good and it's gorgeously filmed it's beautiful to look at it's got so many mysteries in there it's wonderful I love it it is an Australian classic so our international listeners might not have heard of this but it is really gorgeous film and it's steeped in mystery. And this is the mm. thing. It, it always captivated me. I've seen it a hundred times and I've picked up all these other little snippets and tidbits from it. But really, it was, it was looking at websites for the, this week's research that really got me excited about it. So as I've just said, Joan Lindsay herself has always remained tight-lipped about whether or not it was true or not mm. or based on fact. There is a disclaimer in the book which says something along the lines of, this is kind of like an abridged version of what it says, whether Picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves. And then she goes on to say, and really, since the girls would long be dead by now anyway, it hardly seems important. Now, she had a biographer called Janelle McCulloch who said that some students who attended the school the book is based on, so... Joan Lindsay's Mm. old school, believed that the crimes did occur and that the stories might have been based on a case of two girls who went missing around the 1800s. And I will go on to tell you about what happens in the book in a moment and the film. The book includes an epilogue in the form of newspaper clippings at the end, right, which says it's set 13 years later after the events that happen in the book. It states that records of the disappearances were all mysteriously burned in a bushfire, but the search for the girls continues though only a piece of address was ever found of these girls. So already you know some girls have gone missing, okay, if you don't know what happens in the film. As I've said, it's set in Victoria in a boarding college for ladies run by the wicked Mrs Appleyard, and it's the Macedon Rangers in central Victoria, which is where it's set. Yeah. And it's all about a fateful picnic on Valentine's Day in 1900. There is the beautiful Miranda, the key character Mm. that everybody loves. You see her wafting about the halls and she's got this little friend who loves her, a little orphan called Sarah who wasn't allowed to go on the picnic because the head teacher, Mrs. Appleyard, didn't like Sarah at all and she didn't want her to go and she was always punishing Sarah. I don't know what Sarah was doing there because all the other ladies were from wealthy families but Sarah was obviously an orphan. So anyway, the staff and the students had their picnic. They went off in a carriage 
they all loll about in floaty white frocks looking gorgeous and then the weird shit starts to happen. The first thing that starts to happen is the carriage driver and a couple of the staff, their timepieces stop at midday. Now, here's an interesting side note about the film premiere of the 1975 film, Peter Weir's film. The clock at the cinema stopped exactly at 12 o'clock. Whether that was a A little bit of like, hey guys, I know what we can do. But also a producer told the Telegraph, that, which, which is a, an Australian paper, that the same thing would happen on set. And they were filming on site at Hanging Rock in the Macedon Ranges. This producer said, all our watches seem to be playing up. Mine stopped at 6 p.m. on the rock. To ask the time just became quite a joke. Yeah, So right. it was something that was happening around there. Something else that fueled the rubers, this was based on a true story, was that Joan Lindsay never would wear a watch because she said they always stopped on her wrist. Now, Joan, mm. did you remember to wind the things up? Because I do need a little bit of maintenance, you know. So back to the story. Miranda, floaty, gorgeous Miranda, long blonde hair, beautiful. And her friends, Marion and Irma, also beautiful girls, plus hanger on Edith not so gorgeous she was a bit of a kind of hanger on they slipped off to walk up the mountain which they were told on no accounts they should do but after feasting at this picnic they were all kind of lolling about and sleeping and relaxing it was very very hot february is probably the hottest month in australia on the way up they are seen up the mountain or the the rock they are seen and followed by an english gentleman and his butler and he is quite taken with those girls especially miranda (laughs) Then all the girls kind of have a nap on the plateau and their maths teacher also begins the ascent onto the rock. Then the three lovely ladies appear as though they are some kind of under some kind of spell and they're compelled to walk into a crevice in the rock while Edith is saying, no, don't go. And she's screaming and crying and then she runs back down screaming. She sees a red cloud. That's in the book. I don't recall it being in Peter Weir's film, but it's definitely in the miniseries as well. The red cloud is actually really interesting. So pin that one, pin that Mm. red cloud. And then she passes Miss McCraw, the maths teacher, on the way who's who's on her way up as Edith comes running down screaming. And Miss McCraw is only wearing her underwear. And if you think about it, the underwear is actually big fat bloomers and tops. It's pretty covering you up quite a lot. And that's all she remembers when she gets down there. Hmm. She's hysterical, but she has no memory of what just happened, apart from seeing Miss McCraw in her knickers. Yeah. So then they're back at the Appleyard College without three of the girls and a teacher. The college and the town nearby are all in uproar. People, the people whose daughters are at the school start removing their children from there. And the police get involved. The Englishman, whose name is Michael Fitzhubert, is absolutely obsessed by what could have happened to them. So he goes back on the rocks and his manservant, Albert, who's played by John Jarrett, who later goes on to play the murderer in Wolf Creek. Oh, John Jarrett used to be absolutely gorgeous. (laughs) He was also Ned Kelly in the miniseries. Anyway, I digress. So Albert finds Michael Fitzhubert delirious before discovering one of the girls, Irma. She's alive, but she's unconscious. Her feet, strangely, are clean as well. Shades of your story. Yeah. She's missing her corset as well, no underwear, it's like your bra going missing. Yeah. So this is the thing, there's so many, when you were telling me your story, Michelle, parallels. I was thinking about the, the parallels. Yeah. yeah, Michael and his butler, Albert, are now having nightmares, you know, when they get back home, they're having nightmares about the rock. 
Mrs. Appleyard starts to lose it because the parents are pulling their children out. She's taking her frustrations out on Sarah, the little orphan. She's torturing her while falling into a boozy melancholy. And at some point, Irma comes back all dressed in red after having been looked after at Michael Fitzhubert's family home. Then she returns and they, they all attack her saying, what happened? What happened? You know what happened? Tell us, tell us. Because she's saying she can't remember either. Yeah. Later on, a teacher finds, basically, I'm telling you the whole, you don't need to see the film, guys, because <laughs> I'm giving you the whole lot here. So Sarah gets, you know, badly treated. Mrs. Appleyard tells Sarah that her guardians have stopped paying her school fees and she's being sent back to the orphanage. And then it's all very dark in the film at this point. And then the next day you find Sarah dead in the hydrangeas the gardener finds her body there's a little reveal which i won't talk about here actually in Mm. the the 75 film which is great and it links back to other characters in the story and it's wonderful so i'll leave that there for you to find out for yourself but mrs appleyard it appears as though she either poor sarah was devastated the loss of her beloved miranda and the fact that she had to go back to the orphanage and she threw herself out of the window that's what i always believed but Mm. it it is implicated in the miniseries that appleyard pushed her Right. She's just gone too far with all this stuff. And then Mrs. Appleyard then takes her own life and is found at the bottom of Hanging Rock. She throws herself from the rock. Hmm. Now, there's some great scenes in this film, in the Peter Weir film, of the police relying on the indigenous trackers to find the missing girls. I loved those scenes. It turns out that trackers were often used to assist the colonials in traversing the landscape back in the days. Because the traditional owners of the countries had almost forensic skills when it comes to the land. So they were very, very useful. In 1834, for example, near Fremantle in Western Australia, two trackers named Mogo, which is a town near where I grew up, and Molly Dobbin tracked a missing five-year-old boy for more than 10 hours through the bush and found him alive. And again, in 1864, a tracker found the Duff children, Jane, who's seven, Isaac, nine, and Frank, four, who had been lost for nine days in a town or an area called Wimmera. So let me talk to you a little bit about Hanging Rock itself, because it's shrouded in mystery. It's said by the traditional owners to be quite a magical and special place. It's also known as Mount Diogenes and Dryden's Rock, and the traditional owners call it Inganalong. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. It's a former volcano and it has distinctive rock formations, including the Hanging Rock, which is like a big boulder suspended between other boulders. And you do see it in the film under which there's the main entrance path. There's also other rock formations named as the Colonnade, the Eagle and the UFO. Love it. (laughs) There's a suburb called Hanging Rock in my hometown and there was a motel called Hanging Rock Motel and there used to be this little hanging rock out the front. It was just like a a dangling rock and I couldn't find out what's happened to it, but it's gone now. It must have (laughs) fallen. Perhaps it fell. So back to the traditional owners and how they recognised this area in Victoria, the Hanging Rock, as a special place. It was a meeting place for three bordering tribes. It was used in important men's ceremonies, which Mm -hmm. are very important in the Indigenous people as well as corroborees initiation ceremonies that's the men's business song line ceremonies and also trade and relationship building and a place where laws were made and passed but a lot of the indigenous inhabitants would not go to hanging rock after dark because that's where the spirits roamed Mm. sadly that that indigenous population has been forced out of the area by colonists which is always the case. Now, in the town of Wood End, which appears in the film and the book, and it's near Hanging Rock, there is a place that the locals call 
Anti-Gravity Hill, and the local website for Mount Macedon claims that if a person stands on Straws Lane facing up the hill, I don't know where this is because I've never been there, and tips water onto the road, it flows up the hill, not downhill. What? And a ball placed in the road will do the same thing and roll up the hill. Michelle, it's on the town's kind of website. I don't know if that's folklore. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. I'd love to hear from any Australians listening, any that live near Hanging Rock. I know we do have a couple of listeners who do live there. Let us know. Now, also, visitors to the rock often report strange or ominous feelings, plus reports of a park ranger's dog becoming terrified of the area and refusing to go any closer. But now, Michelle, it's used as a concert venue. Rod Stewart and Midnight what? Oil, just some of the acts that have appeared there no. after dark, along with the spirits roaming. You've also got Peter Garrett and Rod Stewart. <laughs> Doing the strutting their stuff. Strutting. So the search for any truth to the story only kicked up one record of a young man falling and dying from Hanging Rock in the early 1900s. But this had nothing to do with this actual story of the of the girls going missing. And then again, in 1907, there was a story of a 19-year-old man who murdered another man near the rock and he was caught by police. Again, not related. There's a book called Murders at Hanging Rock, which is published in 1980, in mm-hmm. which writer Yvonne Rousseau speculates on what happened to the missing women. And this is what she says. Mm-hmm. She says, The events took place in a parallel universe to our own. The discrepancies in the date of events, because in the book, when people tried to find out if it did happen for real, they found out that the date that Valentine's Day fell on was not the Sunday that she said it was in the book and various other discrepancies throughout the book. So that's clearly fiction. But people were desperate for it not to be. So this is what Yvonne Rousseau says. The discrepancies in the date of events, for example, could be explained by a slightly different calendar being used in the parallel world. There is a possibility that the girls had the ability to at least partially levitate their bodies, explaining why Irma was found with her feet undamaged four days after she disappeared. Here's another one from Yvonne. The girls entered some other dimensional state of reality while they were on Hanging Rock. The fact that the people's watches stopped is used to support this hypothesis. Variations could include that the girls actually travelled forwards or backwards in time or that they may have been involved in time travel, dimensional travel and travel into or from a parallel universe. She's loving the parallel universe. She is, isn't she? I was going to say. All over it. The third and your favourite... The girls became involved in a UFO abduction event. Irma's amnesia and the strange cloud, the red cloud, are both used to support this hypothesis. And number four, she says the events could also have involved some form of supernatural activity. That's the end of that point. Thanks, Yvonne. And then five, she has some long-winded explanation of how it was actually Michael Fitzhubert and his manservant, Albert, who raped and murdered the girls after keeping them as sex slaves. I don't know why I'm giggling about that. I'm not giggling. I just think it's a reach because then, well, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Because I remember at the time, especially when you were talking about the um, indigenous trackers that were used, that there was a lot of mystery around the, the folkloric aspect. Of mm-hmm. of tribal and culture, and were they on sacred land? Had they yes? Had they done something to upset the spirits? And yeah. you know, it, there was a lot of talk of that at the time. I do believe. Right. Well, whatever 
Joan Lindsay knew what ha- what happened to them hmm. because she wrote in the original manuscript an ending that publishers insisted she leave out. So it was what? deleted and then released. I remember this coming out in the news in 1987 after Joan Lindsay died. The missing chapter was released and it's called The Secret of Hanging Rock. Well, tell me, I don't know about this. Or is it a spoiler? <laughs> it's a spoiler, but I'll tell you because you can't find it anywhere now. Edith runs back to the picnic area screaming and crying and a mysterious woman in her underwear shouts at them, Through! The woman is probably Miss McCraw, although none of the girls recognise her. This isn't what's written. This is a version. Okay. This is like a, a summary. Yeah. A summary. Yeah. So she faints. So Miss, what, Miss McCraw faints and is later revived by one of the girls loosening her corset to let her breathe. Mm. And the rest of the girls throw their own corsets off the cliff but the corsets stop in midair and just hang there and they all comment eerily going, oh, it's not casting any shadows. Okay. The corsets are just stuck in, stuck in midair, not falling. Okay. The girls then follow a lizard into a crack in the rock described as a hole in space. Miss McCraw, Marion and Miranda go through, but the hanging rock stops Irma from going through so remember Irma was found a few days later mm. it is acknowledged that the crack in the rock is a time warp and that missing the missing girls are in another dimension then two of the girls transform into crabs before going <laughs> through this is what Joan Lindsay wrote then a boulder falls blocking the way for Irma the chapter ends with Irma tearing and beating at the gritty face of the boulder with her bare hands now Joan does tell. (laughs) You can imagine why the publishers were like, really great book, but we need to talk to you about that last chapter. That's got to go, Joan. Sorry. (laughs) Turns out Joan Lindsay, although she did go to... She loved a little wacky tobacco. (laughs) (laughs) No, she did go to a boarding school and a lot of it was based on her memories and her recollections of going to a boarding school in mid-Victoria. You know, it must have been very accurate. She was old when she wrote it in the 60s. She dreamed it. She awoke from a dream that was so vivid that she just had to get it down on paper. It wrote itself, Michelle. It did write itself. So the dream. Including the crabs. So basically, the dream was this lovely floaty thing based on all of her, her and trauma. Then and then it went crazy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, maybe she had a few too many margaritas. Maybe <laughs> when she wrote that. Her. Yeah. Gosh, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean,. Obviously, we've all had dreams that have felt so realistic. I mean, I don't know about you. I forget my dreams pretty quickly. But should I ever have written written them down? I'm sure they would have Mm. sounded insane. So, wow. That movie is iconic. Iconic Australian film. It's amazing. And the publishers were absolutely right to, like, get rid of that last chapter. Did I not say anything about the UFOs? I didn't even mention the UFOs, no. did I? No. And the aliens. Well, they say that the red cloud, in the ending of the miniseries that you and I didn't finish watching, mm. they see the red cloud and they hear some mechanical noises in the background. So they're hinting very heavily at the girls being abducted by aliens. Right. And why not? Why not? Why not? Why the hell I mean, they've been not? they've turned into crabs. They, <laughs> you know, slipped into a crevice. They're <sighs> acting like in a dream state the whole time. That actually makes a lot of sense. But I think 
the mystery of those of Miss McCraw going through through. I just remember that film, and look, I haven't seen it for decades. I need to rewatch now. I'd love to watch it again. Yeah, I hope it stands up. Oh, it will. That eerie feeling, and and the pan pipes, and the white dresses, those beautiful girls. They're really broad Australian accents and just the beauty of that landscape, the red rocks and the the trees and it's just, yeah, very, very evocative of, of, a, yeah. of a time. Gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Oh, well, that is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. I think it is aliens. <laughs> 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 There's not really real life. It was definitely fiction. It wasn't true. The girl. There's no girls that went missing on that rock, but there was definitely yeah. a couple of girls that went missing on the Panamanian mountain. Yeah, it's absolutely tragic and I you know you just got to feel for their families because I don't believe we're ever going to know and the families will have to live it's devastating devastating for them oh well look thank you so much absolutely loved having a trip down Australian memory lane that was gorgeous and uh yeah I'm gonna have to rewatch. I'll put some links I'll put some links to the um the original trailer in the show notes nice Okay, well, this just leads us to the next part where we say whatever you know, where we say wherever you are, whatever you do, just, just keep, keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.